You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Well, good morning, family. Good to see all of you. My name's Jeff, one of the pastors here. One other quick announcement as uh, we jump in today. As, as many of you know, longtime Creeksider Mary Wilson went to be with the Lord a few weeks ago, and her family wanted us to let you know that she will be having a celebration of life service here Monday the 19th, not tomorrow, the Monday after that at 2 p.m. Monday the 19th at 2 p.m. So if you know Mary, or if you know the Moogs or Jack, connect with their family, they'd love to have you here to uh, celebrate Mary's life and the hope of the resurrection, Monday the 19th at 2. Well, as we continue 1 Corinthians, uh, it's a, a fun day. I imagine some of you in this room have never heard a sermon on prophecy or tongues, and I have never given a sermon on prophecy or tongues. So it's a first time for everyone. And whoo boy, I need Jesus' help uh, this morning as we talk about these very controversial topics. So uh, before we go to God's word, would you pray with me? Ask for his help. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We thank you for being present here among us. Uh, Jesus, thank you for reigning over your church, that you are present with us now. Thank you for teaching us through your word, for giving us everything we need for life and godliness. And I pray, Lord, that my words would be clear and helpful today, Lord, and that anything that we desire of your spirit would be rooted in a profound heart for your glory and the good of each other. For your sake, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So my wife, Cashel, and I have a good friend who is a gifted mentor of young women, and she's also a relentless recruiter for her ministry. She's always trying to get other people to help her mentor young women. And years ago, she approached another woman at her church and said, hey, I'd love you to pray about joining me. We need to disciple some young women. And the woman gave the typical Christian response, thanks, I'll pray about it. She prayed about it, and my friend is persistent, so she followed up a few weeks later and said, hey, you've prayed about it, what has God told you? And she said, well, God told me to say no. Now, my friend had gotten this response a lot, enough that she had developed a way of responding. She wanted to probe a little bit, and so she said, well, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. How did God tell you? No. The woman stumbled over her words a little bit and said, well, you know, it's just not the right season and I'm just not feeling led and uh, I don't have a peace about this. And my friend listened and said, that's great, but no, how did God make it clear to you that you weren't called to do this? She hemmed and hawed a little more. I just, I don't feel the peace and I don't feel this and don't have an impression. And this went on and on for a few rounds. And finally, my friend stopped her and said, uh, it sounds like maybe you just don't want to do this. And she said, oh, you're right. I don't. And my friend said, just to let you know, that's fine. You don't have to have God tell you no. You can just say, I don't want to. We want to hear from God, don't we? We really want to hear from God. In fact, I've found sometimes people are so eager to hear from God that they will spiritualize their own feelings and interpret those as the voice of God. The good news for us as Christians is we don't have to wonder if God has spoken. It's not a mystery. The writer of Hebrews says, God has spoken in these last days through his son. God has spoken through the word of God to humanity. And the truth of Jesus, the word of God, is revealed in the words of Scripture. God wrote a book. Can you believe that? He wrote a book. This is a book breathed out by God for us, which means we are not in the dark. We have the light of God's word through human authors 
So we know God's voice. As one pastor has said, if you want to hear God speaking, open the Bible and read it. If you want to hear God speaking audibly, open the Bible and read it out loud. We have everything we need for life and godliness. Even if God did not communicate another word to us, we have what we need to know him in a saving relationship, everything we need to live a life pleasing to him. Scripture is sufficient. And yet there is a question that lingers for many questions, Christians. Is it wrong to desire further revelation from God? Or perhaps we should say further communication, further guidance... If so, what would that look like? Is it permissible? Is it desirable? And why might God do that? Those are the questions we're grappling with today as we continue looking at these so-called miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. We started talking about this last week, these miraculous gifts, and we started by just looking at the nature of gifts more generally. And what I tried to argue last week is that when we talk about spiritual gifts, when Paul talks about them, he's primarily talking about a ministry assignment that God gives us. That's what these gifts are. They're ministries God calls us to. Sometimes they're long-term ministry assignments. Sometimes they're short-term. Sometimes God just calls us to minister in the moment to someone in need. And, and the reason that's so important for us to grasp is that when we minister, when we serve God and serve others, we are not serving out of comfort or convenience or even our own competence. We're ministering out of desperate dependence on the Holy Spirit. God calls us to do something that only he can empower us to do. That's a spiritual gift. So, oh, wow, he's calling me to do this. Jesus, if you don't show up, this is going to fail miserably. That's ministry whether it looks supernatural or natural. That's important for us to understand because if we just focus on what we're comfortable with doing, then ministry doesn't make sense, the miraculous doesn't make sense, none of this makes sense. Then we took some time last week looking at whether the miraculous gifts continue today. So things like healing, prophecy, tongues, they were obviously normative in the early church, so they continue in today. Very smart godly Christians say no. Very smart godly Christians say yes and never the twain shall meet. They disagree. And, and we've made the case, well, first of all, groundwork, at, at Creekside, this is just not an issue we're going to die on. Okay? This is a church where people who think the gifts have ceased, cessationists, and people who think the gifts continue, continuationists, can live happily together and not choose to break fellowship over this issue. I tried to make an argument then that yes, the gifts continue today, that, that the assumption of the New Testament is these gifts are available, but, but here's the critical point. The Spirit distributes the gifts. He's sovereign over giving miraculous gifts, which means we can't manufacture them. They're not skills we can cultivate or things we can coerce God to do, and the miraculous gifts could vary from church to church, from time to time, they could vary in the intensity experienced, the frequency experienced. We're totally dependent on God to do them. We shouldn't manufacture them. And yet, I don't think it's wrong to seek them. So last week, we talked about healing, and that's the softball. That was the easy one. Next two weeks are the hard ones, okay? I'm just warning you, the hard ones, tongues and prophecy. What are they? Do they continue? If so, how? Let's return once more to 1 Corinthians 14, 1, where Paul says this, Above all, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. Remember, 1 Corinthians 13 is Paul's argument for the supremacy of love. Love is the defining mark of a Christian. Love is what endures into eternity. Love is what we pursue. And now, Corinthians, who were self-obsessed, who were unloving, as you pursue love, now pursue the gifts. Paul has no problem with the miraculous gifts. He just wants our pursuit of them to be animated and controlled by what? Love. 
So if a church prioritizes love, how will they do the gifts? How will they prioritize them? Paul says a church controlled by love will prioritize what gift? He says prophecy. Desire the gifts, especially that you might prophesy. That word especially could also be translated rather. So Paul wants the Corinthians to pursue prophecy rather than the gift they were pursuing. What gift were they pursuing? Well, if you look at 1 Corinthians, it's pretty clear tongues is what the Corinthians were crazy about. That was their litmus test for spirituality. If you spoke in these tongues, these languages, that was the sign that you were a real spirit-filled Christian, that you were really spiritually mature. If you didn't speak in tongues, you were kind of subpar. Maybe you weren't even a Christian at all. Paul says a church where we love each other will not prioritize tongues, especially when the church is gathered. It will prioritize prophecy. So today we're going to look more deeply at these miraculous gifts. Three things. First, the priority of prophecy. Why would we prioritize prophecy over tongues? Next, the properties of prophecy. What is prophecy? That's the million-dollar question. What is it? And depending on how we define it, that will help to explain what it might mean to experience that. And finally, we'll look briefly at the practice of prophecy, really the posture of a church that would see this kind of thing happen. Again, totally reliant on the Lord to whether it happens or not. That's where we're going, okay? Hey, and just remember, if you think I'm wrong, that's fine. Okay? <laughs> These are controversial issues. They're just not issues we're going to break fellowship over. So, first one, the priority of prophesy. What should we prioritize? Over tongues, prophecy. Why? Paul tells us, verse 5, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, we'll go back to that, so that the church might be what? Built up. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, love builds up. That is the nature of love. It is concerned with the other. It builds up. What is Paul saying? Prophecy builds up in a way tongues... Do not. Specifically builds up other believers. And that's why a church animated by love will be more concerned with this gift. That's Paul's concern. He wants the church to be built up. Verse 12, he says the same thing. So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, miraculous gifts, strive to excel in what? Building up the church. So when the Corinthians gather, prioritize prophecy because prophecy builds up. That's why the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Greater not in the sense that they're of higher status. That would have played right into the Corinthian status pride game, right? They're greater in the sense they're more helpful to the church. The one prophesying is a greater benefit to the hearers than one who speaks in tongues, particularly when they are uninterpreted. So why is prophecy more edifying than tongues when we come together? Why is it more beneficial to others? Well, to answer that question, we need to look more closely at each of these gifts and what they are, because Paul offers us a compare and contrast between them, and as we compare and contrast them, we'll be able to define them a little more. Last week, I said prophecy is some kind of human report of divine revelation. We'll get more to that in a second. Whereas tongues is this kind of spirit-inspired utterance. Uh, the Greek word is glossa. It can refer to a literal tongue like in your mouth, or metaphorically, it refers to languages. So when Paul is talking about tongues, he's talking about languages. It's some kind of spoken language that can be understood. So what kind of languages is Paul talking about? That's a great question. I'm not going to answer it right now. But let's start by looking at the compare and contrast. Five reasons to prioritize prophecy over tongues. First reason is this. Tongues are for God. Prophecy is for people. Tongues are uniquely directed toward God, Paul says. Prophecy is directed toward people. Paul goes on to say, the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to who? God. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to who? The church, to people. What Paul assumes in this passage, the kind of tongues he's talking about, are a prayer language. Some sort of language a person speaks directly to God, not to people. They're a prayer language. They're also a praise language. Paul goes on in verse 15 to say that he sings in tongues, in languages to God. 
So whatever that means, when I'm speaking in tongues, I am not focused on connecting with you. I'm not. Who am I focused on connecting with? God. In fact, I'm oblivious to you when I'm speaking in tongues. I'm totally focused on God, which means prophecy, which is focused on you, is going to build you up in a way tongues is not. And that leads to the next point. They're directed to different audiences. Second, they have different function. A different function. Tongues are for me. Prophecy is for you. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up who? Himself. But the one who prophesies builds up who? The church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more, Paul says, to prophesy. Paul says, tongues build me up, prophecy builds you up. Now, I don't think Paul is giving a negative assessment of tongues here. There is nothing wrong with wanting to be built up in the faith. In fact, in Jude 20, we're commanded, build yourselves up in the faith. In other words, tongues, whatever this expression of worship is, it edifies us. It strengthens our spirit. It builds up our faith, but it's about me having my faith built up before God, whereas prophecy is focused on building up you. Prophecy is not for me. It's for you. It's for your edification. Tongues aren't bad. That's why Paul says, I wish you all spoke in tongues. In fact, he'll go on to say in verse 18 that he speaks in tongues more than any of the Corinthians. He wants everyone to have this gift. Now, he already made clear in 1 Corinthians 12, is everyone going to have this gift? No, not everyone speaks in tongues. But because Paul found it so beneficial for himself spiritually, he said, hey, I wish you could all experience this. It's a gift. It's a gift from God. It's a good gift. I wish you could all experience it. But here's the point. It's a gift from me. I can do that in my own time with God. I can edify myself, but when I'm on you, I'm focused on who? You. Building you up, which is why that should be prioritized, especially when the church is gathered. Third, this is Paul's big point, tongues are unintelligible. They're mysterious. Prophecy is intelligible. He goes on to say, when one speaks in a tongue, no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for what? Their upbuilding, their encouragement, and their consolation. Prophecy has content. You have to understand something for it to benefit you. Right? At least when it comes to speaking to others. Now here's what's interesting. Tongues do not have discernible content. The person is speaking in a language, but it's mysterious. It is a language, but who ultimately understands the language? God. It's discernible to God. It's only discernible to other people if God reveals the meaning of the tongue. Does that make sense? So we'll get back to that in a minute. But a tongue without interpretation is just weird when spoken publicly. It's just weird. That's Paul's point. It doesn't mean anything. And he uses a bunch of illustrations to drive this home. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? Unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. If, if I come to you and my words are just mysterious, how is it going to benefit you? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? You can't name the tune unless you play distinct notes. Remember when you got that recorder as a kid and you bring it home and you start playing it? You're not making music. You're making noise. And with the recorder, you're still making noise, even when you're playing music. It's just noise. Music is discernible. There's a melody. If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? When the soldiers are called to war, there's a call. It's discernible. If the trumpet just goes, everyone looks around. What does that mean? We don't know. It's not helpful. So, so again, you see the, the point here. The, the thing has to be intelligible to benefit other people. So with yourselves, Paul says, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be what? Speaking into the air. How will it benefit you? Unless you understand its content. 
See, see, here's why it bothers Paul so much. People are not built up. They're just distracted when this happens. They're just confused. Their, direct, their attention is taken away from God. Paul goes on to say this. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, speaking in tongues, how can anyone in the position of an outsider, the person not speaking in tongues, say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be well be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Some of you are from call and response traditions of churches, right? Where you amen. That's how you express your agreement. Some of you amen, and I appreciate that because I know you're listening. So thank you. Uh, amen. Thank you. I wasn't looking for it, but you gave it. So thank you. All right. Um, so, so Paul says, right, like imagine, you know, sometimes you'll be in a call and response church and you don't know whether to amen that. It's not clear. And you go, amen. <laughs> That's the problem with tongues, right? Someone just starts blabbering away in tongues and you're like, I think you're praising God. I don't know if I agree with that. It doesn't benefit. So here's the thing. When tongues are spoken, hearers don't understand what is being said. But Paul goes further. He says the speaker doesn't know what they are saying unless God reveals it to them. That's why he goes on in verse 14 to say this. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is what? Unfruitful. This is very interesting. In scripture, your spirit is the core of your being the part that connects with God. Your mind, it's also part of you, but it's focused more on your understanding, your ability to interpret or comprehend. Here's what Paul is saying, that it's possible to cry out to God from the core of your being to be built up in your faith, to experience connection with God, and yet in this instance, your mind isn't directly engaged. It doesn't necessarily know what you are communicating. God does. You don't unless he reveals it to you. That's what happens when you pray in tongues. Now, I want to clarify some things. This doesn't mean that the experience of tongues is totally irrational. The person is speaking a language. The language is understandable. Only God understands it. And, and here's the important thing. Paul doesn't think this is some sort of ecstatic speech where people lose control of themselves. Okay? Where the Spirit sort of takes over and have lost all self-control. That is not what he's talking about because the fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control. And Paul goes on to say that you know how to keep your mouth shut in worship. <laughs> even when you're praying in tongues. So you can control the gift. You can control the exercise of the gift. It's not irrational. There is content to what you're praying. You can be thinking things about God when you're praying in tongues. You can be feeling affections toward God when you're praying in tongues. And yet you are in control of your faculties. You just don't know what you're praying. It's not irrational. As Sam Storm says, it's a transrational experience of engaging with God. Privately, Paul says, that's beautiful. Publicly, it's confusing. It's weird. And worse than that, it's really alienating in the context of public worship, which is what Paul goes on to say. Why prioritize prophecy? Because tongues alienate, prophecy unifies. It brings together. He says, there are doubtless many different languages in the world. None is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be what? A foreigner to the speaker. And the speaker, a foreigner to me. See, Paul says, when you don't understand each other's language, you cannot feel connected to people. And you know that, right? Have you ever been in a cross-cultural situation where you just so want to connect with someone and you don't speak the same language? It is so frustrating. So frustrating. Imagine that I was a, a fluent Spanish speaker, which I am not. Uh, but I'm a Spanish speaker, talking to a Spanish speaker, but for some reason, I just decide to speak in English. Even though that person doesn't know any English. Is that loving? No, it's just creating distance in the relationship. Paul says when you come blabbering away in tongues, you're just creating distance. You're just alienating when there's no interpretation, because without interpretation, there's no connection. It's alienating for believers, it's alienating for a non-believer coming in the church. Paul goes on to say, 
that if therefore the whole church comes together and just hypothetically everyone spoke in a tongue and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that what? <laughs> Y'all are out of your minds. And sadly, when people are so enthusiastic about this gift, they still do exactly what Paul is telling them to do. If you've ever been in a service where everyone started speaking in tongues at the same time, I can tell you from experience, I did not feel connected to anyone in that room. I felt weird. I felt like I'm not connected to you. You got your own thing going on. We all could have stayed at home and did this. I don't know why we all had to get together to do this because I just feel alienated and weird. Uninterpreted tongues build walls when they're expressed publicly, but prophecy builds a bridge. It consoles, it encourages, it builds up, which is why when we come together, we, pro we prioritize it. Fifth, finally, why prioritize prophecy over tongues? Because uninterpreted tongues are a sign of God's judgment. But prophecy is a sign of what? God's presence. Paul alludes to Isaiah 28 to make this point. He says, in the law, Isaiah 28, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, and here Paul means a sign of judgment. Not a positive sign, a negative sign. What's happening in Isaiah 28? God talks to Israel's leaders, and Israel's leaders are feasting, gluttonous, drinking, getting drunk. They are immoral. They are breaking God's law, and they are proud and presumptuous. They're presuming on God's grace. Who does that sound like? <laughs> the Corinthians. Proud, boastful in their sin, presuming on God's grace. What warning does God give? He says, I'm going to bring in a foreign people as a sign of my judgment. And do you know the sign will be? The Assyrian army is going to come into Israel. And when you hear those Assyrians speaking Assyrian and you have no idea what they are saying, speaking in tongues, that's a sign of my distance from you. That you are unbelievers that you are not acting in faith. The foreign uninterpreted tongue is a warning sign to an unbelieving, obstinate people that is presuming on God's grace. Uninterpreted tongues, Paul says, reveals God's distance and judgment, not his nearness. Does that make sense? So Corinthians, you think God is so close to you because of all these uninterpreted tongues. This is actually a sign of God's judgment that he's allowing this to happen. He's calling you to repentance. Read your Bibles. Conversely, prophecy is a sign of God's nearness. Believers will know God is near when someone genuinely prophesies. Unbelievers will know it as well. That's why when Paul ends the passage, he says this. But if all prophesy, go to the next one, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is what? Convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. When prophecy is genuinely practiced, it's a sign God is speaking to his people, directing his people. He is present and even unbelievers know it. Now we'll talk more about what that looks like in a moment. But, but here's Paul's point. It's not that prophecy is good, tongues are bad. It's that they have different purposes. And some are for private use, some are for public use. And so in essence, Corinthians grow up, stop thinking like children, and start thinking about what would be good for others during public worship. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Corinthians, I like speaking in tongues. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than what? 10,000 words in a tongue. That's countless. Countless words in a tongue do no good. Five words of instruction go far more to help people. So, so what's the solution here? Paul says grow up. 
Stop thinking like children. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be what? Mature. Who do children think about? Me. (laughs) What do I want to do? Impulsive, spontaneous, mature people think what would benefit other people in this situation. What did that mean practically for the church? It means this. Look, speak privately to God in your tongue and then pray what that you might interpret. You might be having this prayer communication with God. Ask God to reveal the meaning. And if he doesn't reveal the meaning, it might not be the thing to share. And when tongues are interpreted, it's clear that an interpreted tongue is just prophecy. That's what it is. It's, it's, it's a revelation from God for the upbuilding of the church. So it's no longer a tongue in the way Paul means it there. Does that make sense? So you pray for interpretation that it might edify others. That's what Paul means when he talks about praying with my spirit, praying in tongues, but then praying with my mind also. God, give me the ability to understand this. Sing praise with the tongues, but also sing with my mind. God, tell me what this means that it might build up the church. God might do it. God might not. But if it's going to be expressed in that way, it has to become an intelligible word to the church. All right. Did that all sort of make sense? Great. Okay. Glad I answered all your questions. Now, it, it raises a lot more questions, doesn't it? Like, like tongues. Okay, how do we practice that gift? How do I know I'm practicing it? What is interpretation? I'm not going to answer any of that today. Come next week, okay? But I'll just note this, that the gift of tongues appears in a variety of forms in the New Testament. There's a variety of ways the gift of languages is expressed. So think of Acts 2. You remember what happens at Pentecost? At the birth of the church, the Spirit of God descends on the church in tongues of fire. Everyone speaks in tongues. There are peoples gathered from around the Mediterranean world for Pentecost. And they all hear the tongues in what? Their own language. So at Pentecost... Tongues are a sign of the global mission of God going forward and people from every tribe, tongue, and nation being brought in, gathered around Christ. But I will note, it's interesting that there are similarities between Acts and 1 Corinthians, but there are also significant differences between the way tongues look in Acts in this one-time Pentecost event and what Paul is saying here. So, for instance, in Acts 2, who speaks in tongues? Everyone. In 1 Corinthians, not everyone speaks in tongues. Um, In Acts 2, everyone speaks in tongues at the same time. 1 Corinthians, Paul says, don't do that. In Acts 2, no interpretation is needed, right? It's a, a miracle of translation where people understand the tongue immediately. Here, translation, interpretation is needed. In Acts, believers speak in known human languages... Known human languages are one kind of tongue. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that no one understands this language, this mystery language in the spirit. So here's the the million dollar question. Do tongues just encompass known human languages or do they also encompass some kind of angelic or heavenly language? That's a great question. I'm not going to answer that one today. You're going to have to come back next week. I don't want to get too far in the weeds here. Here's what you need to take away from this right now. When we come together for worship, it's first and foremost about who? God and his glory. Second, who is it about? It's about the church. It's not about me getting my needs met. It's not about me getting built up. I can get built up all by myself in my prayer closet with God. It's about me building you up. That's why we gather for church. And the danger, even if we're not charismatic or Pentecostal or whatever, is that you show up to church because you need to get filled up. And that's it. I need to get edified. But, but what is Paul saying? That the primary purpose to come to church is the glory of God and the good of your neighbor. The good of believers that they might get built up. I remember a buddy of mine uh, going to church and the worship leader said, now just imagine there's no one else around you right now. Just drown them out. It's just you and God. In fact, put a box around yourself. Just box yourself off. It's just you and God. And he's like, why did I come to church? You know, why did I show up with all these people if I just needed to be in a box with me and God? And that's actually the problem with worship is it's just people gathered together to have their individual worship experiences. 
Look, your singing, your encouragement, your blessing to other people, that's why you show up. That's why we're here, because the Spirit of God works uniquely through us to bless each other when we're together. That's the posture we come in with. If, the, if, if church was just about me getting my needs met, like, let's go back to virtual church, right? Let's just go back to churchual reality. Do you remember that? Max coined that term. That was, that was a good one, Max. Yeah. I guess it's just, okay, me, let me just download the content for me and that's it. That's not it. That's not why we come. Does that make sense? So that's the priority. We're here to build each other up. Next, and, and briefly, I want to look at the properties of prophecy. What is this? How authoritative it is it? And then the posture we need if we're going to expect this to happen. All right, most controversial question, what is prophecy? I'm going to try to give you a definition that's literally just lifted from 1 Corinthians 14, okay? Whatever Paul means by prophecy, he means something like this. It is revelation from God. He uses that term revelation somewhere. Reported by humans, so given to humans, reported by humans in the form of teaching or instruction. I don't know how long that is, but it can be longer, it can be shorter. Teaching or instruction that reveals the secrets of people's hearts, Paul says, that has supernatural disclosure and brings what? Encouragement and consolation, that's verse 3, so that what? The church might be built up. So, so this supernatural gift, there is a supernatural component of God revealing something through an audible message to someone, a vision some way God is communicating, it is being translated, and then the people are being built up. Now, getting the definition right is important because often I think when we think prophecy, we think telling the future, right? As the primary meaning of prophecy. It's foretelling, here's what's going to happen. And it can be that, but I would say in the New Testament, it's primarily forthtelling. It's proclamation. It's speaking to the present situation with guidance from God. It could be foretelling, but often it's forthtelling. So revelation from God in the form of teaching or instruction, revealing, disclosing what's in people's hearts to bring encouragement, consolation, so the church might be built up. Here's the million-dollar question. How authoritative is prophecy? This is where sincere Christians disagree. Because you read like Isaiah or Jeremiah, when they say, thus saith the Lord, scripture starts coming out of their mouth. Right? Binding for all people at all times, divine revelation, but also divinely inspired speech written down in divinely inspired words on a page, binding for all people at all times. The million-dollar question is this. Is every act of prophecy that? Is every time someone speaks a prophetic word, scripture? And, and honestly, sincere Christians disagree on that. Do they all have that level of authority? Because if they do, there would be reason to think this gift does not exist anymore. Maybe it was formative for the church, but frankly, someone today coming up saying, I'm a prophet, thus saith the Lord, that scares me, okay? And it scares me not just from scripture, but from experience, because usually that person is crazy. Like 99 times out of 100, they're wrong in their predictions, and I would tell, run away from that person. They're probably a false prophet, right? When they start talking that way and invoking that kind of authority. That's a scary thing. So, Prophecy, is it only that kind of divinely or authoritative speech? Uh, cessationists would argue yes. I would say that there's reasons to think that not all prophecy can be weighed in the same way. I think by prophecy, Paul could also include a kind of message from God that is reported by humans, but in a way that is situation-specific and does not carry the weight of Scripture. Okay? And if you think I'm wrong, that's fine. I'll try to convince you. Again, we're not going to, to divide over this issue. But, but just a few things about New Testament prophecy and the kind of prophecies Paul is talking about. First, we'll see next week, prophecies had to be weighed. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, test prophecies hold fast to what is good. 
And I think in the New Testament, the most natural way of understanding that is that you're actually weighing the content of the prophecy to see what could be from the Lord and what could not be in the prophecy itself. Now, we don't do that with Scripture. We interpret Scripture, but we just receive Scripture. We don't weigh it in that way, which would mean that someone could be speaking prophetically, and yet they're not speaking the inerrant word of God. They, they are reporting a message from God, but the report is not necessarily right in all the details. I would argue that Agabus in Acts 21, there's an example of that. Remember Agabus, he was a prophet. Luke calls him a prophet. When Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, Agabus knows what's going to happen. He says, Paul, you're going to get arrested. In fact, he takes his belt, he binds it around Paul's hands. He says, thus saith the spirit to me, you will be bound by the Jews when you go to Jerusalem and will be delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, was Paul arrested when he got to Jerusalem? Yes. Did the Jews bind him and deliver him to the Romans? That's not exactly right in every detail. In fact, the Jews tried to kill him, the Romans saved him, and then put him into prison. Now, the cessationists would say that's not a big deal. I would say, oh, I think it is a big deal. Because it didn't seem like they were right in the same, he was right in the same way that, you know, Jeremiah and Isaiah are right. So, that's one, prophecies had to be weighed for their accuracy. Next, prophecies could be challenged. Earlier in Acts 21, there are disciples who warn Paul by the Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. They say, Paul, bad things will happen to you. I take it that that's a prophet speaking there. But Paul says, I'm not going to listen to you. <laughs> I'm going to go to Jerusalem anyway, because the Spirit told me I'm going to Jerusalem. Now, what's happening there, it seems like what's happening is there's a genuine prophetic word going to someone, but they're interpreting it wrongly. That God is saying to a prophet, Paul, bad things will happen if you go there. And the prophet says, well, that means Paul don't go. And Paul says, no, that means I do go because that's what God's called me to do. Does that make sense? Uh, next, prophets were under apostolic authority. Paul is very clear in this passage that anyone who thinks he's a prophet is under him as an apostle. Paul thought his teaching carried a weight that the prophet's teaching did not. Now, I've got about seven or eight more reasons why I don't think prophecy is always equal, but those are the basic ones. Here's the critical thing for us to remember. Whatever prophecy looked like today, maybe God, we call it an impression, a leading, it should never be put on par with the revealed word of God. Ever. Okay? In these last days, Jesus spoke to us through his son. It's in the word. We have the complete revelation. There's no new revelation binding for all church at all times that we're looking for. If prophecy happened, it would be situational. It would have to be weighed. Does that make sense? That's how it would have to be practiced. Now, here's the funny thing about this is that I think cessationists prophesy, but they don't think they prophesy. And a lot of this boils down to semantics. Here's a great example. Charles Spurgeon, the great 18th, 19th century British preacher, was a cessationist. He thought prophecy had ceased. And yet he says there were at least 12 times in his preaching career when in the spirit he called out a person in the congregation and told them what they were doing in their private life. Okay? So he's got this great story. He's like, there's a shoemaker here. And you're keeping your shop open on Sundays. In fact, last Sunday, you made nine pence and you kept four pence as profit. And you need to repent. And the shoemaker came up afterwards. He's like, that's me. Right? <laughs> How would you know, right? The secrets of his heart were revealed. Here's the funny thing, though. Spurgeon didn't think that was prophecy. Because he thought prophecy had ceased. He's like, no, that's an impression. That's a leading from the Lord. It's not prophecy. I'm like, yo, that's prophecy, Okay. Well, that's, that's what Paul is talking about here. So some of this is semantics. People are open to God's leading in these ways. So that's the properties of prophecy. Finally, the practice of prophecy. We'll get into this more next week. I just want to give you a preview right now. If you want to hear from God in this way, you pray, you ask, but here is your posture. Do you know why you want to hear from God? It's not for you. It's for the other person. That really changes our view of hearing from God, doesn't it? Because almost every time I've wanted to hear from God, do you know why? 
It's for myself. It's not for another person. The, the first time I remember being desperate to hear from God is when I was about nine or 10. And you know why? I fell in love. I was smitten with my sister's best friend, Mariah. And I was convinced we were meant to be together. And uh, I was, I've always been kind of a romantic. I was a serious child. So I thought, I don't want to waste my time. I want to know now that Mariah is the one. And I spent weeks praying, God, yes or no? Tell me now. I don't want to waste my time on any other woman. Yes or no? And some nights God would say, yes. And other nights he would say, no. And I was just hopelessly confused, really? Uh, I just wanted a yes or no answer. Come on, God, right? Uh, and sometimes it probably had more to do with what I'd eaten that day. But, but the point is, a lot of times you only want to hear from God because we want to know what to do. And that's the reason people often talk about God told me to move here. God told me to get this job. God told me to do this. My favorite is God told me to marry you, right? Especially when the other person doesn't want to marry them. It's like, God hasn't told me yet. <laughs> I'm going to weigh that prophecy, Jack, right? Like, uh, I'm not sure. Actually, my, my favorite is when someone says, God told me not to marry you. That's the worst because it's like she dumped you and God dumped you too, right? That's the, that's the absolute worst of all. But every time, every story I've heard of something like prophecy begins with a deep concern to encourage or console someone else. God might give you the gift, he might not, but the reality is this, if you want the gift, here's the questions I ask. Do I pray for people, period? Do I only pray about myself or do I have a habit of interceding for others? Next, do I pray with people? Do the things that break their hearts break my hearts? Because I will tell you, every story I've heard involves consolation to another. I don't know if I have a clear prophetic story in my own life, but here are three um, from people who are close to me who illustrate what this looks like. Uh, it, it could be a burden you have from the Lord that something isn't right and something needs to be resolved in a community. So my mentor was in a prayer meeting praying and as they're praying, he felt this unbearable heaviness in the room and he had this sense that there are two women in this room who are in deep conflict and they haven't resolved and we can't move forward in this prayer meeting until they resolve their conflict. Now that's awkward, isn't it? And he said, you know, I'm sorry to interrupt this prayer meeting, but I, I have this strong sense that there are two women here who are in perpetual conflict. I don't know who they are, but you need to work this out. And guess what? There were. And guess what? They did right there. And it was a confirmation of what God wanted to do to what? Build up the church. Sometimes it's for consolation of another. Uh, a buddy of mine was running at night in the park. And as he's running, he sees a guy with his hands down, weeping like this. And he did exactly what I would do. He kept running. Because <laughs> it's night. Guys freaking out in the park. That's not my ministry, right? Not my ministry calling. And yet he heard a clear voice in his head say, his name is John. Comfort him. Comfort him. And he's like, right? Just keeps running. His name is John. Comfort him. So he takes the risk. John? How'd you know? Broke down, poured out his heart, spent a long time just praying with him, consoling him over the wreckage in his life. God uses this exactly the way he says in 1 Corinthians 14, 25, where God will give a confirming word to a non-believer that he's present as well. You, many of you know Michael and Patty Boylan. Patty gave me the uh, permission to share this story, but you know, Patty, when she was seeking the Lord, and reading scripture, she, she wanted to know, God, are you after me? Are you seeking me? And she's in a prayer meeting and someone says, you know, I, I, I had a vision. And, and it was of a flower, something like a petunia. And the flower was in the dark. And now the flower is moving into the light. And it's, it's blooming now. And, and Patty's mom had called her petunia since she was a little kid. And it was the confirmation that, yes, Patty, I'm after you. I want to know you. 
and, and use that to bring her into the kingdom of light. Hope I got that right. You can fact check me later. Hugs good? Okay. Thanks. All right, yeah. <laughs> but, but in every instance, it's not about me. It's about the other person. So I would pray, first, God, if you have something like that to give, we'll talk about it more next week, how to practice it. God, would you raise up the people who are going to bless your church in that way? And then when I'm in situations with people in need, the thing I'm always asking is, God, what does this person need now and what should I say? God, I don't know their heart. I don't know what their past. I don't know what they're dealing with. But if there is something you want to communicate through me to them, would you tell me now? That's the posture. That's the posture. If you don't deeply love and care for other believers, I don't think you're going to see this happen. You're not. That's the necessary condition. It's not a sufficient condition. God's free to do it or not, but it's necessary. And so if you are yet to believe and you're here, I'm so glad you're here because the truth is this. You don't need a prophetic word to know that God is after you. The, the, the scriptures say that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, judgment. And so if you are sitting there as a non-believer and you feel convicted, I don't have God in my life, that there is something wrong with me, guess what? The conviction, it's not because I'm up here preaching, it's from the Spirit. And the good news about that is when you see your sin and your need for God, you're in the best place possible. Because that conviction is not a hopeless thing, it's a hopeful thing. It's designed to lead you to the good news that, yeah, you are a sinner, just like me. And yeah, you have failed, just like me. But, but that's who Christianity is for, is sinners and failures. It's not for the healthy. It's for the sick. It's not for those who think they're righteous. It's for those who think they're unrighteous. It's not good advice. It's good news. And it's the good news that Jesus came to die for your sin and rise that you might have eternal life. It's about following a savior, not a life coach, who will save you from all your sins. Let's pray. And so God, I, I thank you for giving us the full counsel of your word, Lord. Uh, it is not an easy thing to preach on, Lord. We want to be ruled by your word, God. And we also want to be attentive to what your spirit is doing. And we want to be used by you. Lord, you do not have to give this gift to us. But Lord, insofar as it would strengthen the faith of your people, would you give us insight that only you can give? That we might speak life to each other and that we might know you're in our midst, Jesus, because you are. Would you manifest that in ways that your name would be glorified and that your saints would be edified? And we pray it for your sake, Jesus. Amen.